Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our next edition of the InQtel podcast, Mission Investing at the Intersection of Technology and National Security. I'm, I'm your host, Steve Boucher, president of InQtel, and I'm very excited today uh, uh, to be joined by Chris Bros, our guest from uh, Andrew. And I'll ask Chris uh, uh, to join in a second. But just to remind everybody, uh, the purpose of this uh, podcast is to uh, uh, talk about some of the topics front and center, I think, of people's mind as they think about the intersection of uh, technology and national security and the challenges uh, and opportunities that we're facing as a country to pursue them. So, Chris, first of all, thank you and welcome to the intersection. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be with right. you. So, if, if you don't mind, uh, why don't you just give uh, everyone just a, a brief background on how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, so I started with Andoral Industries uh, about two and a half years ago, um, and I came from that job or came into that job from the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, where I spent the better part of a decade working for Senator John McCain, a um, number of different roles, but uh, last four years as the uh, staff director of the committee, um, really kind of uh, working with him and the majority kind of overseeing everything that the committee does as far as oversight of the defense program, authorization of uh, defense activities, things like that. Uh, spent some time at the State Department prior to that, uh, working for Secretaries Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, and yeah, spent most of my career in government prior to getting into the tech world. Right. And you've also written a book. Uh, yeah. In my copious free time, I did a book. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, massive oversight on my part. Um, yeah, about a year ago, uh, published a book called The Kill Chain, really focused on exactly what you highlighted at the beginning, kind of the intersections of uh, advanced technologies and national security. And, and, and I got to be honest, I, I love the book. I read it when it first came out. I bought a bunch of copies and gave it to some CEOs for Christmas gifts because uh, I think it really does speak to everything that we're thinking about and doing here today and, 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 and why this podcast exists. So I'm really excited to have you on board and, and, and appreciate you taking the time here today. Before we get into some of the book and some of the ideas about the books, though, uh, I think everyone's uh, always interested in sort of careers and, and, and human stories. So so tell me how you spend your time, you know, uh, sort of the bulk of your career in D.C. working for different government positions, and then you, you make the jump to a California startup. Tell me about your thinking there and, and how, how, how has that experience been? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my life has been sort of a series of like interesting kind of breakpoints and intersections. I mean, you know, when I, when I was in college, I was focused on political philosophy and things that had nothing to do with the things that I'm doing now. And, and my senior year in college was 9-11, and that really kind of took me down a different path. And it's the path that I've been on ever since. Um, you know, in, in my time in the Senate, you know, I became increasingly concerned about, you know, kind of America's position vis-a-vis uh, -vis our competitors, vis-a-vis -vis kind of the pace of technology, um, and just the, the belief that we were increasingly falling behind. You know, I became increasingly interested in the sort of, I think, the importance that advanced technologies are going to play and enabling us to kind of move uh, in a different direction, kind of move uh, farther ahead. And, and really, you know, I wanted a different challenge. I wanted to uh, be more involved in the development of these technologies, you know, be at a place where they were really being built um, and, and frankly, just kind of be challenged in a different capacity. I wanted to, to leave government. I felt like I had uh, done uh, everything that I wanted to do in the time that I had to do it. Um, and, I, and I really wanted to be uncomfortable again. I mean, I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to grow. And most importantly, I wanted to focus on a place that was kind of fundamentally aligned against these future problems and future technologies. Uh, that's great. And so uh, uh, two years in, uh, what's the biggest difference between working on Capitol Hill and working for a startup company? <laughs> uh, where to begin? Uh, 
culturally obviously very different. I mean, I've had to, I guess I'd say like, I've had to reset my whole understanding of time, you know, in the government, uh, you know, whether it's Capitol Hill or the executive branch, you, you tend to sort of think about things on uh, much more elongated timelines. Um, and I think in a startup company, the, the kinds of things that we can do in days tend to take the government, you know, weeks, months, years in some cases, uh, and, and just the, the sort of seeing how fast it's possible to make the kinds of progress that we're making at Anderil and the other companies are making in the sort of uh, startup technology world uh, has just fundamentally realigned my own belief of how available these technologies are now and how quickly we could be moving uh, if, if the government accelerated its approach to these problems. Well, I think that's great. And, and, and I'm a firm believer that, you know, we as a country would be better off if we had more people that moved from government to startup and more people to move from startup to government. And we had more cross uh, uh, collaboration and, and cross uh, uh, working, if you will, uh, in, in those areas. So I think what you're doing is great. And, and again, you know, just another reason I'm excited to have you on, on board today. So uh, uh, let's get into it. So tell me about the fundamental premise of your book, The Kill Chain, which is also, I think, in some ways, the fundamental premise of Anderil, you know, in, in terms of where we need to go as a country in our, uh, our nation state competition with China. Yeah, I, I guess I'd say the fundamental premise is uh, you can be sort of boiled down to disruption. You know, a lot of the conversations that I feel like we've been having around technology, national security, China, uh, have, have really been kind of framed around innovation, um, sort of a need for innovation, a failure to innovate, those kinds of things. And I feel like a lot of times the question of innovation is the wrong way to frame it because it tends to sort of uh, denote or get used a lot to sort of suggest, you know, kind of using better versions of the things we have to do better versions of the things that we've been doing. Um, like if you were to ask the French or the Poles in like the 1930s, they would say that they're really innovating in like fortifications and horse cavalry. And they still got run over by this disruptive capability called Blitzkrieg. Like, I think the basic premise of, of the book is we have been systemically disrupted in our national defense enterprise for about the past generation, um, disrupted by a pacing threat in the form of China in particular, um, but to a lesser extent, other competitors who have just fundamentally gone to school on the way we build our kind of national defense enterprise, our military forces, how we operate them in competition, crisis, and conflict. Um, and have built up and sort of modernized kind of different advanced capabilities to really try to deny us uh, all of the things that we kind of fall in on, the assumptions we make, the capabilities we've built, the conops we've used, sorry, concepts of operation, um, to really deny us the ability to operate the way we want to operate uh, and achieve the goals we say we want to achieve. And then on the other hand, you've got uh, a fundamental disruption that's been playing out in the technology world. Um, you know, where the pace of technological advancement, largely in the commercial world, uh, in my opinion, has just really kind of left the defense enterprise in the dust. And I think you kind of put these dual disruptions together and really kind of the question that I'm wrestling with in the book and every day since is how do we disrupt ourselves? How do we create incentives, sort of systemic incentives in this very weird thing like uh, what my old boss used to refer to as the military industrial congressional complex? to actually generate disruption and, and, and get it to scale. Yeah. So, so one of the concepts you, you wrote about in your book that resonated with me was, you know, we are very good at preparing to fight yesterday's war. Uh, uh, we're not very good at preparing to fight tomorrow's war. Can you just maybe elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it really comes down to how we think about the future. 
And, and this is like an inherently difficult thing for anybody to do, right? Businesses, athletic teams, you know, everyone struggles to think about where their industry is going. Um, I think it's doubly hard in national defense because, um, you know, in the absence of actually fighting wars, it becomes very difficult to sort of assess yourself and determine, you know, am I really ready to do the things that I might be called upon to do in the future? Now, that being said, I think the way we think about these problems has has largely kind of, uh, you know, kind of occurred and still is occurring in like a very slow industrial age process of we're going to define requirements for the things that we need for the future. Uh, we're going to build, you know, kind of very large and sort of long timelined programs uh, to sort of deliver those things and then acquisition strategies to go buy those technologies that we think are important. And we're doing this on wildly unrealistic uh, timelines, you know, where how we think about engaging with the future kind of gets boiled down to, you know, well, I'm going to make decisions right now about the things that I believe I'm going to need to have in like the year 2030. And if you were to ask anybody in the commercial world, well, like, how do you think you're going to be consuming information and moving around town in the year 2030? Like, no one would get it right. Uh, so we have a system, I think, that's kind of fundamentally geared to think about and prepare for the future in a way that's almost set up for failure. And it's it's benchmarked against, I think, very kind of uh, old industrial age kind of processes and systems and technologies that just aren't the kind of core of military advantage and power now and moving into the future. Yep. So you, you make a similar point to one that I've made on a couple of these shows previously. I just want to get your, your take on, which is, you know, I think we've entered into a nation state competition with China. I don't think anybody would dispute that. Technology is going to be a strategic lever in that nation state competition. China uh, uh, certainly realizes that and has a huge uh, uh, nation state technology strategy, if you will, that uh, brings together uh, uh, a civilian military uh, fusion uh, uh, to execute on it. And the United States has been in previous nation state competitions where technology has been important uh, uh, in that competition. And I worry that principally, you know, with Russia in the Cold War, and I worry that what the United States is doing is they're trying to take that playbook and run it against this new uh, conflict with China. And that playbook, I think, used to be we're going to take a bunch of money. We're going to fund some very basic research to develop some hugely expensive but dramatically uh, uh, transformative capabilities, whether that's uh, uh, nuclear weapons or missile defense systems or, you know, uh, uh, the race to the moon. And uh, we're going to transition that technology from the research into uh, uh, development and deployment through working with some big system integrators that only build directly for the government. And yet, if you look at what China is doing and what China believes, I think this next uh, conflict is going to be all about, it's going to be all about what uh, I think we call dual-use technology, right? It's technology that's developed both for the commercial world and for the uh, government uh, markets. And unless you're developing that technology for both markets, you're not going to push the technology to its uh, furthest uh, 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 or greatest point of development, right? And so it's things like uh, uh, artificial intelligence, autonomy, sensors, uh, uh, cyber, uh, bio, uh, uh, batteries. Those are the technologies we're going to be uh, competing over. And if the United States government is not accessing those technologies that are being developed for the commercial sectors as well as the government sectors by companies like Andrew, you know, and, and, and others, we're not going to uh, be at our best in this nation state competition. I'm just kind of curious uh, uh, what, what your take is on that. No, I, I think I think the premise is fundamentally right. I mean, if you if you just look at the structure of uh, you know how research and development dollars are being spent and deployed in the United States right now, um, that Cold War model that you mentioned, where the U.S. government was really kind of the driver of research and development, science and technology uh, for these critical technology areas, 
Um, that's just not the world we live in anymore. Um, like government investment, such as it is, is just dwarfed exponentially times over by the investment dollars that are going into technology development in the private sector. Um, so I think the real question for government is exactly the one you mentioned. How does government create the incentives to actually bring those technologies in, um, create, you know, kind of incentives for them to be applied or modified uh, or developed in totally different ways for the very specific kind of national security missions and use cases that the government is going to have to undertake, but increase the velocity at which that happens um, so that you're not, you know, sort of thinking that uh, the best thing that you've got today is the thing that you're then going to, you know, have for the next 10 years. Uh, but create more of a marketplace of competition where the thing you have today you assume is going to be outcompeted and disrupted by uh, the thing that is being developed today and that you're going to have access to tomorrow. Um, that's the thing that I find is just so lacking in the U.S. government is incentives for meaningful disruption and competition um, and the ability to get, you know, kind of winning capabilities, differentiated capabilities to scale quickly. You know, we tend to do a lot of small science projects. We kind of dabble in a lot of different things, um, but really getting government investment behind the deployment of technology uh, that is working, that has been proved out, whether in the commercial world or in the defense world, um, that to me has been a, a systemic failure of our defense enterprise over the past 25 years or so that we have to correct uh, or everything is going to kind of continue to go down and die into this proverbial valley of death that we talk about. Yeah, no, th those are great points. The other aspect here that we haven't talked about much is where is the technical talent in the United States? You know, my, awesome. my father-in-law uh, uh, graduated from Caltech and then uh, got his PhD at Stanford, you know, electrical engineering, and uh, went and worked for a series of defense contractors for his entire career. People like him today that are graduating, you know, schools like Caltech and Stanford and MIT today, they're not going to work for the defense contractors, unfortunately. They're going to work for startup companies uh, uh, like yours and, 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 and others. And if we want to access the best and brightest minds, I think we got to go to those companies where the, the, the best and brightest people are working and, and get them excited about and motivated to, to solve uh, problems for, for the U.S. government. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, right? I mean, I think we've 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 seen exactly what you've said play out, where you know, kind of the best minds of my generation have gone off to write, you know, advertising optimization algorithms uh, in the tech world. Um, perhaps an interesting problem. I don't think the most important one. I, I think the question for the government is how do you create incentives for those types of people who, who more often than not, in my experience, are very open to doing national security work. They're excited about the hard problems. Um, and, and what they really want to see is, is there a path for me to be personally successful for the company that I work at to be successful? Uh, can I make a successful career doing this work? Uh, and so often, I think in the past, you know, 20, 25, 30 years or so, more often than not, the answer has been no. Um, so folks have been voting with their feet to go do work where they can work the way they want to work. They can get rewarded on a faster timeline. They can be successful based on their merits. Um, we've got to find a way to kind of create more models. Uh, that make that kind of work appealing inside of the national defense world, um, you know, where where they see a path to success on a relevant timeline. So uh, another one of your points in the book that I wanted to touch on, and, and let me see if I can summarize it and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, 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 is I think the idea that the United States is interested in funding a few small number of uh, highly expensive, long time to build, exquisitely capable uh, uh, but highly manned uh, systems or platforms, whether that's, you know, aircraft carriers or fighter jets or satellites, you know, in the sky. 
and that's how we project force, and that's how we've overwhelmed, you know, sort of the adversaries for the last uh, 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 really 50 or 60 years since we, we fought a, a true world war. That's how we projected force and won those, those battles. But China's following a different strategy, right? China's uh, building a large number of very quick-to-build, uh, unmanned, autonomous uh, systems that they, they can afford to get some number of them destroyed, and they're just going to overwhelm us with, with numbers. First of all, did I get this premise right? And talk talk to me about the consequence of, of, of that uh, uh, premise. Yeah, no, I, I think you got that basically right. Um, you know, that that is the defense kind of program that we have today. I mean, it's largely characterized by exactly what you said, sort of smaller and smaller numbers of like really big, expensive, exquisite, heavily manned, hard to replace systems. And uh, exactly the disruption that we were talking about earlier that's been playing out is the ability to just put larger and larger quantities of systems, whether it's unmanned systems, precision strike weapons, uh, sensors all over the place to just network uh, and sort of sense make and understand what's going on, identify targets. Um, you know, that's the real disruption that's been playing out now for the past few decades. Um, and it's been visible to us, right? I mean, you know, put China aside for a second, right? It's been visible in what the Russians have done in Ukraine and Syria, what we just witnessed play out in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, you know, this is where I think these technologies are going, particularly when you have adversaries that are thinking creatively about how to employ them operationally. So the real challenge for the United States is this entire model that we have is being disrupted when I have a, you know, a $12 billion asset in uh, you know, one of our 10 aircraft carriers um, that is going to have a really difficult time hiding, maneuvering, you know, kind of inside of the spaces where it's going to have to operate. And then if found, if targeted and tracked, survive just salvos of dozens and perhaps hundreds of weapons uh, that are unfortunately very cheap to build, very fast to field, um, incredibly accurate and increasingly lethal. Um, you know, there's lots of things that we can do to to try to, you know, kind of make that less bad. My contention is that it's playing a losing game and it's ultimately going to end in failure unless we think about building a different kind of force uh, on the foundation of the current force that we've had now for a few decades. And if you look at the products and capabilities that the Chinese are, are building these days, they look and feel a little bit more like consumer electronics or uh, uh, business uh, 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 devices, don't they? Then they look like big military uh, uh, systems, right? And, and I think that, again, speaks to the idea of where, where is the U.S. going to source uh, technologies to compete on, on those platforms? They're going to source that from the, the commercial sector more than they are from the traditional contractors. No, I, I think that's right. And I think, you know, just to add a point, right? I mean, you know, as, as much as China is 100% sort of moving down the road and has been moving down the road of long-range sensors, long-range precision fires, unmanned systems, um, you know, they're also building a very large blue water Navy at a very fast pace. So there's a degree to which they're also not only sort of beating us at a different game, uh, they're increasingly beating us at our own game of of just outfielding us when it comes to the sort of very traditional systems that we have been so focused on. So it's just to sort of add to the point that, you know, we're also not going to get ourselves out of this problem through the same uh, kind of ways and means that we've always assumed, because we're now going to be dealing with, you know, for example, a Chinese fleet that is that is significantly larger than ours and growing at a at a, at a faster rate. So we've got to think differently about how we solve these problems, both as far as how we defend ourselves as well as how we project military power. Yeah. So what are some of your ideas for, for how we do that? How do, how do we uh, uh, change what we're doing and compete better? 
Yeah, I, I think, I mean, first and foremost, you know, I, you know, we're the better part of a decade on the Hill tends to make you rather practical and pragmatic. I mean, some might say cynical, yeah. um, but I would say the- I wouldn't say that. <laughs> no, my, my assumption is like, we're not just going to kind of magic away or hand wave away the force that we have, right? A lot of this gets down to the creativity of, uh, you know, kind of military operators to think differently about how we can use systems that we have. You know, the example I cite in the book, like we've still got people coming up with creative things to do with the B-52. That's awesome. And, you know, I'd like to think we can continue to do that. That being said, I think really the challenge for us is thinking about how we build a very different kind of military force, a very different kind of set of national security capabilities that are going to have almost the inverse set of attributes of the one that we were talking about before. Now, where we're talking about sort of larger and larger numbers of smaller networked, kind of more lower cost, autonomous kind of intelligent systems uh, that I can afford to lose in larger numbers, replace very quickly. Um, but again, pragmatically, like that force is going to have to figure out how to get into the places that we want it to be employed. It's probably going to have to rely upon the force that we have to do some of those types of things. So uh, it's, it's more a question of how we get those technologies in. Um, and really thinking about uh, how do we create networks of capability rather than thinking about single sort of hardware platforms, uh, the way we have, I think, very kind of traditionally been thinking about and building our military program. You know, I think the broader kind of insight here is the answer is going to be, uh, you know, what are the effects that I can generate through larger and larger numbers of networked systems, um, all of which inherently are going to be kind of smaller, more commercial, uh, you know, cheaper to build, easier to lose. Um, but when you kind of aggregate them together and network them together and automate the way they operate, you 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 get a significantly enhanced capability. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great great vision. Uh, do you have any thoughts on sort of what are some of the key technical challenges that we either need to solve or improve on? You know, to sort of deliver on the vision that you just described. Yeah, I mean, I think there's 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 a lot that has to do with just. Uh, the deployment of technologies that are available now. So I, I think a lot of the, the discussion around artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, you know, to me, it's look, there's there's lots of areas of new sort of science and technology development that's going to have to happen. I think the major challenge for national security is how do I deploy technology that's available to me right now that we use every single day in the commercial world, you know, to disrupt the way that I can think about operating. Um, there are other things that I think where we really are going to have to kind of push the bounds of new technology, new development. And that's everything from things that could be more mundane, like batteries, uh, you know, kind of increasing the, uh, the range of systems that we have, you know, kind of miniaturizing payloads and the like, um, to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of harder problems, quantum information technologies, um, those types of systems that um, could be very game changing over time, biotechnology, but, you know, there's still kind of more work to do in, in the sort of, true research and development side of it. And then I guess the last point I'll raise here in this conversation, which has been fantastic. Again, thank you for your time here. It's like, you know, China's not just pursuing a military strategy. You know, they are pursuing a, a, a what a lot of people call the, the civil fusion strategy, right? A, a projecting force, not just by developing blue water Navy or you know, developing some of the capabilities we talked about here, but also building out a very strong economy that is uh, uh, influencing you know other countries and other actors uh, through their economic uh, assistance and, and economic interchange. You know, using platforms like Huawei, you know, uh, and SenseTime, and uh, 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 you know, distributing vaccines. Right, is another act that you're you're seeing them do. Talk about how everything we just talked about today fits into that larger strategy of the their civil, civil mill fusion strategy. 
Yeah, it's a great point. And I think, you know, the the broader point to me is that, you know, the the game that China is trying to win uh, is this great power competition, right? It's not necessarily, you know, the World War III that God forbid, you know, will never happen. It's the day-to-day competition right now for economic influence, technological dominance, um, you know, kind of market share. Um, that's where they're very aggressively competing to include, you know, the, the sort of military dimensions, gray zone, influence operations, information operations and the like. Um, but how that all kind of comes together in a whole of government strategy um, to really do exactly what they are very clear about, which is leapfrogging the United States into a position of kind of global leadership, regional dominance, um, and beginning to change the way the world operates. Um, I, I think for us, you know, the challenge really is we're not gonna we're not gonna be successful trying to replicate China's model of civil fusion and sort of state-directed development. Um, but we've got to be, you know, the government has to be more directive in terms of how it deploys its resources to create multiplying effects, uh, whether it comes to, you know, kind of the economic dimension, trade and investment, um, technology for sure, um, so that we get, you know, a far better sort of public-private synergy without it being public directing private, uh, but really kind of falling in on a model of, you know, I think American success that gets at the creativity, entrepreneurialism, sort of disruptive, critical thinking uh, qualities of our society, our economy, our people to better align incentives where the government is sort of setting strategic direction and really creating the incentives for a mobilization of the country to, 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 to be successful by competing in this, in this great power competition. Great. Well, I think that's a great uh, way to conclude this conversation, Chris. Uh, again, thank you for your time here. We really appreciate everything you're doing, everything Andrew is doing uh, uh, as, as we both uh, uh, pursue this mission and this journey. Uh, so uh, just want to say thanks for joining me at The Intersection and uh, uh, hope everyone uh, here enjoyed our, our conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much. And thanks for everything that you're doing and Inkytel is doing. It's uh, hugely important. Mm-hmm.